I'm Bonnie Glazer, Director of the Asia Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Welcome to the China Global Podcast. Over the last two decades, China has invested significantly in the international media system. It has employed various strategies, including funding media organizations and communications infrastructure in targeted countries, engaging with foreign publics on social media, launching disinformation and misinformation campaigns to alter local perceptions, and provided training for journalists. And these investments are shaping how China is covered by different media outlets and how different populations view China around the world. Beijing is also attempting to erode the principle of independent objective journalism. Government, civil society, and the media itself have responded differently in each country, with some more vulnerable and others more resilient to these efforts. Freedom House recently published a report that quantifies China's influence in the media environments of 30 countries around the world, including the United States, between 2019 and 2020. And they examined a variety of influence operations like propaganda campaigns, journalism trainings, and the spread of disinformation on social media. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Cook, one of the lead authors of the report and Freedom House's research director for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Sarah also directs the China Media Bulletin, a monthly digest in English and Chinese that provides news and analysis on media freedom developments related to China. She's followed these trends for over a decade. Welcome to the China Global Podcast, Sarah. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So let me start by asking, what are China's broad objectives that it seeks to achieve through its efforts to shape the media environments in the countries that you surveyed? Is is China basically just trying to shape positive views of itself around the world, or is it trying to push negative views of the United States and thereby damage U.S. reputation and reduce U.S. influence? So the short answer is both, but also um, I think some other dynamics. I mean, one thing I think is there is this element of, quote, kind of telling China's story well, but really it's not just China's story. It really is the Chinese Communist Party's story. And I think that's one thing, you know, we really tried to see how we could disaggregate and look at here because it is really very much tied to the Chinese Communist Party's legitimacy defending and representing and distorting certain policies and actions at home, like horrific abuses in Xinjiang, like cracking down on protests in Hong Kong or smearing and discrediting the protests when they were happening. And so it's very much about making the world safe for the Chinese Communist Party. Now, part of that is trying to conflate the connection between China and, and the CCP and promoting Chinese culture and all, you know, geography, tourism, all these like really amazing things about China. I think anyone who, you know, who's familiar with the country and has spent time there really appreciates whether they're critical of the Chinese government or not. But when you really look at kind of the overall objectives, it's very much, you know, trying to create a friendly global environment for the Communist Party, for its leadership in China, but also for its investments, investments by, you know, its foreign policy actions, both for the Chinese government, but also for China-based companies that have close ties to the party or seen as national champions and the like. So there's an element of kind of defending the domestic record and governance track record within China, but also making, you know, opening foreign markets. 
The element is that it's not just about propaganda. There's very much a censorship dimension to it. So there's certainly this element of like trying to get certain things not said, whether it's investigative reporting, but also just incisive political commentary, suppressing voices of dissidents, including in Chinese language speaking communities. And I think those are two goals that you see really playing out in the tactics. Those have been around for a while. More recent, I think, have been elements related to trying to promote China's model of governance and the CCP's model of governance in particular foreign areas. And then this dimension of this very strong anti-American sentiment and narratives and distortion. So you'll see in a number of countries we saw where you would see local concerns about some kind of like Chinese investment project, but the Chinese government or embassies or state media's response was to kind of try to twist it and make it seem like it was really all just about U.S.-China rivalry and kind of distort it that way. And then you have some real disinformation campaigns that are focused on, say, claiming that COVID started at Fort Detrick in the United States. So there's definitely that more element of spreading falsehoods as well. So talk a little bit about the evolution of China's strategy here. How long have they been doing this kind of investment in media organizations? Has this become like a higher priority under Xi Jinping than it was under Hu Jintao? And the report covers the period from 2019 to 2021. And did you see in that period a change in the tactics that China was using compared to prior years? So it's really interesting. I mean, I think the first efforts to really influence media globally date back to 1989. Um, I mean, maybe previously during a Cold War period. But that was, you know, when you had the protests in China, the crackdown in Tiananmen Square. There was actually a lot of support among the Chinese diaspora for those protesters. And the CCP was taken aback a bit. And that was when you first started to see real efforts to control media, to gain media ownership, to get friendly owners. And so you had a variety of tactics, which are actually the same tactics we're now seeing now in some cases being deployed in a much wider variety of languages. So that was kind of when some of it started. The main major uptick, I think, in terms of broader global audience targeting actually occurred under Hu Jintao. He was the first Chinese leader to really invest billions of dollars around 2011. And if you look, for example, at the filings in the United States of how much money just China Daily was spending here in the U.S., you see a huge jump from around like $3 million in 2010, $9 million in 2011. Xi Jinping comes in, it's $15 million. So it's something that started under Hu Jintao, but has really accelerated under Xi Jinping. And I think with Xi Jinping, and this you see inside China, He's very savvy. He gets the internet. He gets social media. And so I think you see an evolution that is more sophisticated, um, more dynamic, more adaptive, and in other ways also, though, more coercive and aggressive, which has also been a feature of what we're seeing in terms of governance within China being more repressive under Xi. You know, I think that's kind of continued over the past decade. If you look at the period from 2019 to 2021, you see a continuation of those trends of more sophistication, more types of covert, you know, like using fake social media accounts and things like that, and more coercive behavior. And I think you see it across a wider segment of countries. So countries where you might not have seen this previously or really wasn't maybe an issue, you see that more. And I think part of it is actually because the party feels more defensive. Its reputation really took a hit in terms of 
the repression in Xinjiang, the protests in Hong Kong, the cover-up in Wuhan related to COVID-19. And I think the effort to try to retake and improve its narrative when it's facing more critical public opinion has contributed to these more aggressive tactics. In your report, you identify countries that are targeted that have very high or high levels of China media influence and then others that have notable and low levels. So what's the difference? Which countries have the highest levels of Chinese influence and why are they the priority targets for China? So maybe I could take a step back and just explain a little bit about how we define Chinese media influence, because I think it goes far beyond just the propaganda. We had a number of different buckets we were looking at. Part of it is the propaganda push, both in traditional media and also on social media, but not only through what Chinese state media are doing, but actually a lot of it is them working through local media. So one of our main findings was this kind of borrowing the boat tactic of getting Chinese state produced content inserted into local media, country after country. That was one of the things that really surprised me. It was like 130 outlets across 30 countries, just major media after major media and country after country. So that's really been, uh, I would say, a tactic experimented in for a long time, but you're really seeing kind of a doubling down on that and reaching massive audiences in many countries. So there's that propaganda dimension. Then, as I mentioned, there's the censorship dimension, using economic leverage, picking up the phone from, you know, Chinese embassy officials. So in 16 of the countries, there was an embassy official picked up the phone and, you know, reached out to a journalist or an editor about coverage to express this pleasure, sometimes contributing to some aspect of that being removed. But a lot of times they also work through local officials and local media owners. So actually in 17 countries, that happened where you had a local official or a local media owner taking action to suppress certain types of coverage or reporting related to China. And then you get into the kind of the disinformation dimension, the spreading of falsehoods, the using fake accounts. Then you see the infrastructural dimensions of how you have companies linked to the CCP that are gaining control over social media apps, mobile phone devices, other types of elements, digital television infrastructure, and some indications of some manipulation occasionally happening there. And lastly, the trainings that you mentioned early on, Bonnie. So that's kind of like the full spectrum of media influence tactics. And some of these are carried out by different parts of the Chinese state apparatus. It's not always the same people. It's not only the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So when we look at a country that faces high or very high levels of media influence efforts, it's kind of a certain degree of breadth and depth and intensity across a certain contingent of those different tactics. And so some of the countries that had the highest levels of influence efforts that we identified, Taiwan, perhaps not surprisingly, was the highest. And then actually the United States and the UK were the next. And I think it's, you know, it's an element, again, these are kind of the influence efforts. That's not to say how impactful it is. They face a lot of resistance. And, and but I think actually, again, it's some of that resistance that then triggers more aggressive, more covert and more coercive types of shenanigans to try to achieve their goals and get content to audiences that, you know, won't want it if they know it's coming from the Chinese government or CCP. Then you kind of go down the spectrum, countries that have lower levels, it's where less of that is present. But once you get past those top three, you see how global this is. You see countries like Nigeria, the Philippines, Italy, Spain, Argentina. And those were countries where there was some varying combination of these different tactics playing out that contributed to altogether, when you look at it, 
wow, there's actually quite a bit of influence efforts happening in this location. Did you look at all at the extent to which China is learning from Russia? ways of influencing media? Because I think some people, certainly early on in the COVID pandemic, found that the Chinese were simply copying some of the Russian disinformation. Did you look at that over this period? We looked at it a little bit. I mean, we didn't look in detail at, say, for example, you know, how much planned coordination there might be, but in terms of like what might appear and how you see overlapping in terms of tactics. I think a couple of things stand out. One, in the disinformation space, you do see adaptation and evolution and greater sophistication, including creation of, say, persona accounts in some of these fake account networks that are disseminating content, including in languages like Spanish. It's not only, say, in English or in Chinese. And that's something that they seem to be experimenting with more and gaining some success. So we had a number of countries in Latin America, you had actual real influencers from those countries retweeting or sharing a message that was actually from a fake persona that was in Spanish, right? Linked to one of these networks that then we know about because Twitter or Facebook took them down and then there was analysis on it. I think the other is just the way in which the state media outlets from these different countries, Iran gets into the game sometimes too, will just amplify each other. And of course, we've seen that after our coverage period with the war in Ukraine, where you see Chinese state media amplifying certain messages about the war in Ukraine that are coming out of the Kremlin. So that's maybe more on the narrative side than on the tactical side. But I, I think overall, the goals that the CCP has, they're kind of are worried about the reputation still. And so you do see a movement towards kind of muddying the waters, engaging in some discord, especially in heavily targeted countries like the U.S. and Taiwan. But in most countries, it's more about trying to like networks of fake accounts to amplify the posts of the Chinese diplomat, right? As opposed to just try to mess up domestic politics, which is more, as I understand it, kind of more of the, the Kremlin playbook. So you do assess in the report China's influence, and you break that down into six categories. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and whether you see Chinese influence consistently greater in some categories than others, and whether that varies from one country to the next. Sure. So, I mean, clearly there's a massive investment in the propaganda side of things. And I think, as I said before, I mean, I think this element of barring the boat to reach the sea and inserting Chinese state content made by Chinese state media or embassies into local outlets is just a massive investment. And that's one of the things that's really spread widely. And the level of labeling varies significantly. So in some cases, it's very clearly labeled. In a lot of other cases, it's really not. And if you were a reader, it would be hard for you to know that this is actually Chinese state produced content. And then, you know, I think you see, again, as I mentioned before, the censorship dimensions in one form or another not just picking up the phone and putting pressure on journalists, but defamation suits, cyberbullying, cyber attacks. We found one or another of these different censorship and intimidation tactics in 24 out of the 30 countries. So that ends up being fairly common. And again, I think more so than it would have been a few years ago. And then on social media, you have, again, this kind of more overt engagement on the propaganda side but also pretty widespread use of fake accounts, either to amplify posts that was found at least half of the countries or these more sophisticated disinformation campaigns that combine spreading falsehoods and fake accounts. What you see in different countries is that these different categories I talked about before, where you also have 
elements of infrastructure or trainings. In certain parts, say, of the global south, you might see more of that happening. So in parts of Southeast Asia, in Africa, there's very much a presence in the digital television space. But I think what you see, and particularly in terms of countries where the influence may have more or less impact, is the extent to which local officials or local media owners have been co-opted and are actually of their own initiative doing the CCP's bidding. Because that's actually where some of the most effective, either propaganda, but really censorship happens, and you see real gaps in coverage or, or distortions in how information is being reported in the country. Do you see evidence that China is learning from the way that it is seeking to exert influence? Does it assess whether or not something is effective and then change its methods over time? You know, it's really hard to know without having kind of that insight into what's going on. There's definitely a clear sense of adaptation. I think one thing that was interesting is that you do see a lot of backlash, say, against the wolf warrior diplomacy approach in a lot of countries. And so actually, you know, one of the variables that you see changing from country to country is the role of the local ambassador. And in some cases, they're more aggressive and it's more wolf warrior. And so you get more aggressive and coercive tactics, but you also get more backlash. And then there's a rotation and things kind of smooth out a little bit. But then there's still like there's more of the softer types of co-optation, as well as in some cases, real genuine engagement with local users on social media. That does seem to be effective. I think it kind of can still vary from country to country and ambassador to ambassador. I think the more clear examples of adaptation, this is again a different part of the party apparatus, is when you get to some of these disinformation, fake network type of dynamics, because that up until 2017, 2018 wasn't even happening. So there's still a relatively newer player. And as you look at these different like takedown reports, and I go through all the details, you see kind of the evolution in the different tactics there. The report looks at 30 countries, which in Freedom House's typology are identified as free or partly free. But obviously, Freedom House has in its typology also 56 countries that are labeled as not free. So what is China doing in those areas? Are, are you planning to do another report that, that looks at them? And maybe you can just tell us whether you think the tactics that they're using in those countries are similar or whether they use different approaches. Yeah, I think I could speak to a little bit of that tactical element. I think what you see in countries where, and we are already among our countries, the ones that were on the lesser free end of the spectrum, you saw more of this. And that's really working through the local elites. Where, you know, the, in Kuwait, you know, maybe it's that the Chinese embassy wants to get an interview with the Taiwanese foreign minister removed from an outlet. So they maybe go to the outlet, but they might also go to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or someone in the Kuwaiti government and get them to suppress it. In Mozambique, that happened. So I think those elements of working through the local officials to suppress content or to get local officials to propagandize on their behalf, or in some cases to override certain regulatory decisions that might disfavor, say, digital television company, a Chinese one like Star Times. Those are some of the dynamics that I think we saw in our lesser free countries. And I think you would see more of in the not free countries. I think the other thing is this element of the training, not just for journalists, but for officials. So you do actually have the CCP running trainings for officials on put, guiding public opinion and things like that. And then I think a greater openness to adopting some of those tactics, in some cases, maybe some technologies in terms of, say, filtering websites or just trying to copy certain aspects of the, quote, China model of digital authoritarianism. I think you'd see more of that, those parts of the methodology and those types of dynamics in countries that are less free, that are more autocratic. 
So I know you're really passionate about what makes countries resilient to these sorts of influence offer operations from China. So I really want to hear about what you think makes some countries more resilient than others. Like in your report, the Philippines comes out as being a more resilient country. But then there's other countries in Southeast Asia, like Indonesia and Malaysia, which are considered to be two of the most vulnerable countries to Chinese influence. So how do you count for these differences? Right. So one of the, you know, more optimistic and I think really interesting dimensions of this project is that it was looking at the influence efforts, but also at the response in relatively democratic countries. And we did find quite robust response, especially from journalists and civil society. I think it was really in the government space that you saw more lagging. And again, in some cases, actually assisting Beijing at achieving its goals or, or particular tactics. The Philippines is actually an interesting example. We have a government like Duterte's that was very pro-Beijing, but you also have a really robust history of investigative journalism. You also have an issue, honestly, like the South China Sea that people feel very passionately about. And that media outlets on national were covering the issues that fishermen were facing and things like that. You have a really robust press freedom community. And so I think it's some of those elements of underlying media resilience that we found in addition to pushback that's specific to Chinese influence, but that underlying media influence that can be activated or that just forms an underlying ethical foundation. So you had example in the Philippines. I think there was, you know, there's an effort to try to submit some kind of article that wasn't labeled by some China linked entity and the newspaper rejected it. The Filipino Journalist Association actually issued guidelines on coverage of China that are very interesting because they touch on issues related to editorial independence, but also on things, for example, how to not use racist or xenophobic language, which was actually something that came up in a good number of countries. So I think those are some of the things that can really create a degree of resilience. In Malaysia and Indonesia, there's, you know, you have some activity like that, but it's not that level of robustness. In Malaysia, also a very large Chinese language media space, and that's heavily influenced from Beijing and really, you know, affects a pretty large proportion of the population compared to other countries. But I think that element of both the underlying media regulations, including freedom of information requests, just general protections for freedom of expression, independent courts, independent media regulators. We had a number of examples in all kinds of countries in Taiwan, in the UK, in the United States, transparency rules that were really activated to unveil what was happening in terms of CCP media influence and have a really positive effect. In addition to, I think, what we would think of as more particular specific investigations or initiatives to raise public awareness or certain policies that are more specifically targeted towards China, which we saw in a much smaller set of countries. What should countries or media companies concerned about Chinese influence be doing? How would you critique the U.S. response, for example, since the U.S. is a main target? Is restricting Huawei equipment, for example, in the United States, labeling state-run media, as is now being done on Twitter, are those kinds of things useful in building resiliency? I'll touch on the second one first, because that's a very clear yes. Any element that relates to transparency and letting users know where information is coming from, that it's coming from a Chinese state entity, 
you know, so that would be say the Twitter and, and social media. So you actually see studies that after the labeling started, there about a third of the engagement with some of the posts. There was about a third reduction in the level of engagement in some of the posts. That's probably why you started to see more fake accounts and fake personas, to be honest. But also mechanism in the U.S. like the Foreign Agents Registration Act that unveil like the money trail of how money is getting from Chinese state media to local news outlets can be very effective because then that was published. There was greater actually enforcement of it. So we knew more about what, how much money was going to which outlets. And then honestly, some of those outlets discontinued some of the content partnerships that had been going on for a long time and getting Chinese state media content to local audiences in a way that was not always fully transparent. We saw it actually in 28 of the countries, some kind of reporting that enhanced awareness about local CCP influence in that country, either in the political space or in the media space. And it really had a profound impact on the level of public awareness, public debate and resilience that people understood what was really actually happening. And there could be some real conversation about safeguards that could be put in place. I think the question when you get to, you know, how much access to the market should be restricted, whether it's for apps or for other telecommunications companies. I think there it's really thinking about how is that done and, you know, under democratic standards. So it's not arbitrary. Because I think the arbitrary restrictions is where it gets very messy, very problematic, you know, and then we're basically kind of doing like the way Chinese government regulates media and, and companies. But I think when you actually have you know, rules and regulations that require certain actions, certain transparency on the part of the companies, or certain rules related to cross-ownership rules, related to political ownership. And if these companies then violate those rules, then they should be held accountable like anyone else. And I think that's part of what we saw in the United Kingdom with the license revocation for CGTN. We saw that with some of the cases in Africa related to Star Times. We've seen it in Taiwan with some outlets that are very pro-Beijing and have been fined. So I think when you think about what the democratic response should be, that type of very rules-based approach allows for real fairness. And even if there ends up being restrictions, it's on the basis of a certain degree of transparency and accountability as well. In countries that are more vulnerable, less resilient, What are the impacts you see over time of Chinese influence operations? Where does this manifest itself in the erosion of their democracies or the governance system, the way the public views the effectiveness of governance? What do you see over time? So I think part of what Beijing is trying to do is, A, undermine accountability for its own violations at home. So if you look at the recent UN vote related to Xinjiang, Actually, a number of the countries that voted with Beijing, or even though they're democratic, abstained in a somewhat surprising way, are actually ones that we found to be vulnerable. And now there may not be a specific link between the media influence, but that relates to, I think, this element of political elite capture and the ability to really affect certain decisions, because most of those countries didn't vote no or didn't vote in favor of Beijing at the U.N., because of the substance of the issue, unfortunately. It was more likely because of other interests and other pressures. In my pre-Freedom House days, I did some UN advocacy, so I know a little bit about that. So, and I think that's where you really see, you know, the influence happening. But it also relates to domestic issues. And when we look at some of the topics that and reporting that faced pressure for censorship, 
It related to local investments. It related to, oh, Xi Jinping is coming to visit. I think it was Panama or there, you know, or something like that. You know, because we're worried we're going to lose advertising from Huawei or some other Chinese companies, let's be careful about how we report on them right now. Right. And so that really deprives the public of really important information about decisions that their governments and companies and regulators are making today that, as we've already seen, can have really long-lasting implications for public debt, for corruption, for infrastructure. And I think that's where the lack of transparency, the lack of proper reporting on those elements of bilateral relations becomes very, very worrisome, I think. And you see local journalists and local publics responding to that, but you also see the suppression. So there's a real kind of competition there. And then, I mean, I think the flip side is that in a lot of ways, since 2019, the prognosis, I guess, for the CCP's impact of CCP media influences is very mixed because actually in 23 out of the 30 countries, public opinion has worsened since 2018, 2019. If you look at surveys that are available related to reputation of China or reputation of Xi Jinping personally, much less trusted. So you do see some of their, and a lot of it is because of their own actions or undermining their own narratives. So they're investing billions and billions of dollars to shape the narratives, but then their own actions and the revelation of those actions, be they in China or in the country locally, and end up undermining that massive investment that they're making. Well, well, tell our listeners, the report's title is Beijing's Global Media Influence 2022, Authoritarian Expansion and the Power of Democratic Resilience. And of course, you can find it on freedomhouse.org. And we've been talking with Sarah Cook, who is Freedom House's Research Director for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. And she also directs the China Media Bulletin, which is a monthly digest in English and Chinese. Great to have you with us today, Sarah. Thanks so much for doing the China Global Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for covering the report. 